0: Welcome to the Autism Empowerment Podcast, your source for acceptance, enrichment, inspiration, and empowerment in autistic and autism communities worldwide. Wherever you identify in your autism or autistic journey, Autism Empowerment is here to meet you along the way. We are an autistic-led podcast, 501c3 nonprofit charity, and publisher of Spectrum Life Magazine. In today's episode, we'll be talking about commonly overlooked signs of autism in adults and why so many people in their 30s to 60s and older don't get identified or diagnosed until later in adulthood. It's estimated that over 2% of adults in the United States are on the autism spectrum. If you're asking yourself if you or an adult family member or friend may be autistic, and if so, what to do next, please listen in to today's show.
1: And we're back in the studio for our next episode. How are you doing there, Karen?
0: I am doing fantastic today. How are you, John?
1: I am doing pretty good. It's a beautiful, snowy day.
0: It's lovely. I can see the snow outside, and it's gorgeous.
1: Thank goodness there's no snow here in the studio.
0: Thank goodness. It would be quite cold. With that said, hello to our listeners. Whether you're here with us for the very first time or you are a returning listener, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Karen Krecha, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of Autism Empowerment, I'm one of your hosts for today's show, and I'm here with my husband, John Krecha, who's our programs director and our other co-founder.
1: Thank you, and welcome to all of our listeners today.
0: Today we are on episode number eight, and we'll be discussing signs of autism in adults who've likely never been diagnosed. Many of the signs we'll be discussing are things that may have been overlooked when they were children. For now, I'm going to turn this over to John to take on the primary duties of asking questions and helping keep me on track for this episode.
1: I'm more than happy to keep you on track for today's episode. So my first question is, why are we talking about this today?
0: Well, John, in Episode 7, we talked about early signs of autism in children, as well as the CDC's Learn the Signs Act Early program. This was geared toward identifying signs that might present themselves in certain kinds of ways in either early childhood elementary school, or even middle school age. Because most people didn't hear of autism prior to 20 years ago, even though what can be called autistic behavior did exist, there are many generations of adults out there who grew up undiagnosed or diagnosed with something different. So most millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, and generations born prior to 1945 might not have learned about autism until relatively recently. The people most likely to be diagnosed would be people that were born in the late 90s, Gen Z, or whatever generation I think we have now. I think it might be Gen Alpha. A 2017 study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the prevalence of autism spectrum disorder among adults 18 or older in the United States is at about 2.21%, which comes out to over 5.4 million people. There's not an existing surveillance system to collect this information, so this study helped fill a gap. But what that tells me is that there's a lot of people out there that have the signs and the symptoms and the traits of autism, but just may not be aware.
1: So, Karen, you got your diagnosis later in life. What are some of the reasons why people maybe have not realized that they were on the spectrum?
0: That's a great question, John. First, I think it would be helpful if I got into a brief history of autism and how it was looked at here in the United States in the past. Autism was initially a psychiatric condition described in the 1940s by Leo Kanner as extreme autistic aloneness, delayed echolalia, and an anxiously obsessive desire for the maintenance of sameness. It was associated as a sort of childhood schizophrenia or as an emotional disturbance that did not impact cognition. It was also incorrectly presumed to be the result of cold parenting, so... Back in the fifties or sixties, you might have heard something called refrigerator mothers. That cold parenting theory was disproved in the sixties and seventies as more research was done to show biological underpinnings and a root in brain development. Autism was first added in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual number three in nineteen eighty as a pervasive developmental disorder, which was distinct from schizophrenia. They continue to do research on it, and in nineteen ninety four, the DSM four was the first addition to categorize autism as a spectrum disorder. Underneath that, you would have seen autistic disorder, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, Asperger syndrome. At this point in time, there was a lot more autism awareness, and so more children were starting to be diagnosed in these categories. But then in 2013, there were changes again, and the DSM-5 came out, took out Asperger's syndrome, took out pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, and put everything under the one umbrella autism spectrum disorder.
1: That was really helpful. Thank you.
0: To answer the question more completely, I would say that a lot of adults didn't realize that they were on the spectrum because there wasn't a whole lot of autism awareness that was going on as these definitions transformed and evolved. So you would still have people that were autistic all of this time it just wasn't being classified as that or called that. So people may have grown up with learning disabilities or different types of challenges, and they may have been diagnosed with something different. So your child who had impulsivity issues might have been called hyperactive. Later on, attention issues that would have been ADD or ADHD, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, a lot of different diagnoses might have been given to people before they would have been diagnosed with autism. Also, for many people, autism is genetic and runs in families. So if you may have had a quirky or eccentric uncle or a family member who had similar mannerisms that you do, you wouldn't have necessarily... Realize that there was something different. That was just the way your family was. A lot of times, older family members that are diagnosed later on in life find out when their children are diagnosed or their grandchildren are diagnosed. And then they go back through their family tree and are able to look back and see, oh, I think that probably autism may have been running back in many generations.
1: And that's what kind of happened with us and our family as well. Mm -hmm. Our kids were diagnosed first, and then it was like, oh, Our oldest was just like you, and there you go. Yeah.
0: Another reason that I didn't mention before was intellectual disability. And that's something where when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, children who had intellectual disabilities, they either weren't in the same school with us or they were in remedial classrooms. And so if a child didn't have an intellectual disability, they might not have been identified with autism Intellectual disability can exist without autism, and autism can exist without intellectual disability. But there is a crossover where about 33% of people with intellectual disability also have autism.
1: So Karen, what is the diagnostic criteria for autism today?
0: But today, the source for diagnostic criteria continues to be the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, DSM-5, and it continues to be a spectrum disorder. Now, some will call this a neurological difference, but we're talking today in terms of what a psychiatrist or a psychologist or another type of clinician would use to diagnose autism. So I'm going to go ahead and read the main diagnostic criteria and talking about this in somewhat jargony medical terms, but then we're going to make it easier for us to understand. So we're going to break it down into examples of signs and symptoms that people might be able to relate to their own personal experience. Fabulous. So the first main diagnostic criteria is persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts. The second is restricted, repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. Now, these criteria are the same criteria that they use to diagnose children. There is not separate diagnostic criteria yet for adults. The way it manifests itself in children versus adults will look different. However, the symptoms for both need to be present in an early developmental period, generally speaking, the first couple years of life. Sometimes you can see autism as early as a few months, and sometimes it may not be noticed until about two years, three years, but the symptoms had to be present, even if they didn't fully manifest until social demands exceeded the limited capacities or may have been masked by learned strategies later in life. The symptoms have to have caused clinically significant impairment in either social, occupational, or other important areas of current functioning. And the criteria cannot be better explained by intellectual disability or global developmental delay. Intellectual disability and autism frequently co-occur, but in order for the diagnosis of both to take place, the social communication piece should be below that which is expected for general developmental
1: level. So let's go ahead and break this down a little bit further. Let's go over some of the signs in autism that may have been overlooked in childhood.
0: Okay, so when we talk about these in context, we're going to be giving you things that you can relate to today. You may have also experienced them in childhood, but it may have been overlooked because you were able to find other kinds of coping mechanisms. We'll break this down into a few different categories, social signs and interactions, verbal and nonverbal communication, repetitive or ritualistic behaviors, and then also some sensory and physical signs too.
1: Excellent. So let's first start with social signs and interactions.
0: Okay, so by and large, adults on the autism spectrum have difficulty relating to other people. It may have felt when you were a kid that you came from a different planet, that you just didn't quite get and fit in with other people unless they were a lot like you, in which case you may have gravitated automatically to people that were neurologically diverse or on the spectrum without even realizing it but it's still an overall sense of difficulty in relating to people that are not autistic or relating to the general public, I would say. It could also include difficulty interpreting what others are thinking or feeling. A lot of adults on the spectrum have the tendency to see the world literally. When they hear something, they will first be thinking about it in a literal sense before they're able to maybe abstract out certain ideas. They may be visual thinkers, So as a kid, if you heard the saying, it's raining cats and dogs, you may have really seen cats and dogs flying down out of the sky. In fact, you still might. But that literal thinking sometimes makes being able to hear sarcasm and idioms and metaphors difficult. There's also a tendency toward black and white thinking, which is also sometimes called splitting.
1: Splitting? What's that?
0: It's thinking in extremes. It's a failure in a person's thinking to be able to bring together both positive and negative qualities of the self and of others into a cohesive, realistic whole. So sometimes people will use extreme words in their characterizations of themselves or others or objects, beliefs and situations. They'll be never or always black or white. And it can show up as a defense mechanism, too. It often is a characteristic of borderline personality disorder where people view events in themselves in all-or-nothing terms. It allows people to readily discard things that they've assigned as bad and to embrace things that they consider good, even if those things can be harmful or risky. So other signs of social challenges might be that you may feel like you become whoever you're around most. So you might want to mimic the accents or the mannerisms or the slang of the people that you hang around with most. This is very common in girls when they're growing up. The interesting thing about that is that you may also feel like you're always on a stage. So a lot of adults on the autism spectrum that may not have been diagnosed before would have gravitated toward theater. They liked playing a character that was outside of themselves and they liked taking on these different parts, and they may have been able to memorize extensive types of script. Going along with that, you may constantly rehearse conversations or interactions. So it might also look like when you're under stress or you need to have an important conversation with someone or maybe even make an appointment or ask someone out on a date, that you have to rehearse the conversation or interaction in advance in your head. You just can't go in and do it naturally.
1: So in the 90s, there was a show called Monk, and the main <laughs> character, there was one episode where he had to write out, It had this interaction, and all of the cards, like what uh, the person might ask, and then he had another set of cards on how they would react. Something yes. like that?
0: Absolutely. So Monk had obsessive compulsive disorder, right? A lot of people on the spectrum have that obsessive, repetitive, compulsive component to them. They may not actually have a full diagnosis of OCD, but that need to be able to rehearse and to be able to plan and have that control, to be able to control the conversation and know
1: what's going to happen. So if the conversation has already happened, do they go back over and and replay those conversations? (laughs) So I can tell you that I have had
0: arguments with people that I still play over decades later, or I have a situation with someone and it didn't go well, at three in the morning, I'm going over in my head what I should have said instead. Did you call them up? No, because I hate the phone. (laughs) But (laughs) I certainly thought about it.
1: We'll talk about the phone later.
0: Yeah, yeah. So people on the spectrum oftentimes struggle with friendships and not just making them. They may be able to make them, but keeping them, So they may have only had one or two really close friends. Or if they had friends growing up, they might have had a friend they were really loyal with. And if that relationship broke up, it would have been very devastating. So relationship breakups can be extremely difficult. And a lot of times people may not understand the dynamics of friendship in depth. So they might consider all of their acquaintances that they have friends. So if you think about Facebook, All your
1: Facebook friends, right? Yeah,
0: I have, I think, over a thousand people that I'm quote unquote friends with on Facebook, but I've met maybe a couple hundred of them. (laughs) And as far as close friends, you're my bestie, John. Oh, thank you. Okay. One other thing I wanted to point out too is that people on the spectrum often struggle with other people breaking rules. That might be the law. That might just be cutting in line. Any type of rule that you can imagine, they might just really struggle
1: with it. I would imagine that they might make good lawyers or judges.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. A lot of the careers that people gravitated towards were related to law, related to passions or special interests.
1: Because the law tends to be black and white sometimes. So let's move on to verbal and nonverbal communication.
0: Okay. There will be some overlap with the previous. One very common thing is a lack of interest in small talk. Going into a room and having to make small talk conversation at cocktail parties or at work events or whatever it might be would just drive a lot of people on the autism spectrum to increased social anxiety. I know that for myself, I hate small talk.
1: I know you like really in-depth conversations.
0: I want meaningful, in-depth conversations. In order to adapt to the small talk thing, I had to memorize a bunch of different types of scripts and things that I could do to be able to, quote unquote, break the ice. But I hate those icebreakers.
1: I would also think that large groups like a family reunion would be very difficult because it's all about small talk.
0: If you've got family members on the spectrum, it might work out. But yeah, those
1: as long as they have the same interest.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. Good point there. And if you think about Thanksgiving, Christmas, big gatherings, that can be very difficult to focus on conversation if in a group or a crowded area. That can be because conversation's going too fast. It can be a lot to process at once. And for me, I can hear others across the room, and particularly if it's someone I know, John, maybe my, like me, exactly like you. I could be all the way across a stadium and hear your voice, it seems.
1: I think that's a good thing, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs>
0: but it is very difficult. A lot of times people on the spectrum will say that they want those one-on-one conversations where they can focus. But if it's in a room with lots of people, it's quite difficult. So if you think about classrooms or you think about work environments, work cafeterias or parties, things like that could be very problematic for people.
1: I know you've told me that in large gatherings, you're hearing all of the conversations and you're receiving all of the sensory input all at one time.
0: Mm -hmm. It can be very overwhelming. And you'll find that after doing that type of social interaction, you're going to need to decompress and take a break. It can be such that if I go out for an hour I'll need to have at least an hour of time where I'm away from everybody so that I can just recharge my batteries. It's also difficult for a lot of people on the spectrum to read people. And by read people, I mean body language. Because a lot of times it may be very difficult for us to look at other people in the eye when they're talking. Eye contact is something that can be painful because of sensory issues or it may be also that you're having to process what the person is saying and in order to do so you need to look away so that you can really focus. When doing so you may miss other body language types of clues. You may also have difficulty reading facial expressions. It can be much more difficult for some people who may not have a wide range of their own facial expressions so they don't recognize the variety of ones in other people. That can be something that can be learned, but it may not be intuitive or innate.
1: I know you've told me that you've had sometimes face blindness, where you can't recognize the same person just because they've changed their hair color or uh, style or something like that.
0: Yes, that can be really difficult. It can be embarrassing if I introduce myself to the same person twice (laughs) within 30 minutes because they left the room and came back. That's something that's not a diagnostic criteria, but it's something that I know that a number of people on the autism spectrum have challenges with that recognizing of faces and facial features. Other things that some people may have problems with are taking jokes very literally and not understanding teasing, particularly if it's with someone that they're not that familiar with. They may also miss sarcasm or subtleties while others are speaking. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be sarcastic because some of the people I know that are on the spectrum are very sarcastic and fun and have an awesome sense of humor. And anyone who tells you that people on the spectrum don't have a sense of humor don't get us. It's just a different brand or a different flavor of humor. That doesn't mean that if I met somebody and they were deadpan or they were very cold in their presentation of something that I might be able to tell whether or not they were serious. Again, that goes back to that literal thinking and not always being able to ascertain what somebody means. Some people can get very good at reading people. I actually have developed a pretty good skill of reading people because I have an ability to be able to see patterns and sense things. So as I have gotten older, I see certain reactions, and if this happens and this happens, then it means blank. So it can be a system where it's almost like a program in your head that runs through different things to be able to give you the answers, but it isn't intuitive necessarily.
1: That's why sometimes I don't like playing games with you because you can always tell what character I am.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I am good at patterns and a lot of folks on the spectrum do have that pattern ability as well. But you
1: know what? That leads into the hidden curriculum.
0: Oh, my goodness. So, yes, not being able to pick up on social niceties and manners and rules and norms that other people just seem to be able to learn and pick up in such an easier way. And I would imagine we all have to be taught these things to an extent, but for people on the spectrum, missing out on these norms and curriculums for different types of things just seem to happen much more frequently. Along with that last one, a lot of folks on the spectrum do not understand why their blunt honesty is seen as rude. Although it's good to be honest, sometimes it can really hurt somebody's feelings if you're too honest. So an example of this might be, John, if I asked you if this dress made me look fat and you said, well, everything makes you look fat, honey.
1: I would never say that because I'd end up (laughs) on the couch for weeks.
0: For weeks, for weeks. These are going to be people that when they were kids would have told you exactly what was on their mind without dressing it up with words that would be less hurtful.
1: Like, oh, how was your dinner? Oh, it sucked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was horrible. (laughs) It was awful. It was the worst. It was the worst ever. Yeah. The blunt honesty thing can be very difficult for people because they tend to lose friends that way.
1: Well, it could come off as rude, actually. It
0: comes across as very rude and doesn't play well a lot of times with employers. It doesn't play well with teachers. If people don't know you're on the spectrum, they may just think that you're a jerk.
1: You might be an excellent person and a wonderful human being. But that's how it may be perceived.
0: There are some things that some of us could learn in terms of being a little bit more tactful.
1: Like, how was my driving? It really was bad.
0: That's a safety issue. People do need to know that. Yeah. So anyway, as you mentioned before, phone. Many people on the spectrum have a real struggle talking on the phone and would much prefer to communicate via text or email. And in the olden days, as my youngest likes to call me old since I'm over 50, I would have preferred writing a letter.
1: I think he called you ancient. Ancient, yeah. Because he was very blunt about that.
0: (laughs) Ancient sounds better than old, actually. Would you rather be ancient?
1: So back to the phone. Why is it hard for you to be on the phone and why do you prefer to text or email?
0: When I'm on the phone, I can't see the other person, so it's difficult for me to be able to try to read their body language and their mannerisms. People tend to get a glazed look on their face if they want you to stop talking, so these awkward pauses and not knowing the turn-taking that takes place in phone conversations, I just hate that. Also, I just don't feel that sense of control that I would because I'm not able to predict things as much. It's one thing if I set out to make a phone call and I have a specific task in mind that I want to complete. But it's another thing if it's just a phone conversation that is filled with small talk. I don't see the purpose for it.
1: That makes sense.
0: Also, if people are asking questions... On the phone, it's so much more difficult to be able to then process and respond, especially if you have trouble getting what's in your head out of your mouth. With email, I have time to be able to process and reflect and think about exactly what it is that I want to convey, and I can do that in that written form. With phone, it's more expected that you're going to give an answer right away. As an example, in terms of this particular podcast, when you asked me that question, I had to pause an awful long time before I could respond. But we're able to cut that out due to the magic of podcast editing. It can be very difficult to be put on the spot and then have to give a response.
1: see you know, that could be very difficult.
0: So then finally, a lot of people on the spectrum have a tendency to talk at great length about the subjects that they're very passionate about and not understand, again, that back and forth of conversation that ties in a bit with the phone that we were talking about. So there's trouble knowing when they should stop and pause and let someone else have a turn. And if they're really passionate about what it is they're talking about, they may go on for minutes, hours, or perhaps days. I think we all know people like that.
1: Yes, we do. So the next one I want to move on to is repetitive and ritualistic behavior. So first we'll start with behavioral signs.
0: Probably the biggest one that I can think of right now in terms of repetitive and ritualistic behavior is routines. Routines are very important to people on the spectrum. They may not be routines that everybody else knows or understands, but they're important to that person. If changes occur that are unexpected, outbursts, meltdowns, all sorts of emotional changes happen. This last year has been so incredibly difficult for so many people, for everyone. Everybody has had to struggle to adjust when their plans have changed without warning due to COVID-19. For a person on the spectrum, it would affect them at a deeper and more intense level because their routines are really thrown off. It would potentially increase social anxiety and they would get more upset when these types of changes occur because it's this lack of control of being able to understand and have control over your own situation.
1: So can I give an example of that? Sure, that'd be great. So Autism Empowerment has an adult support group pre-COVID-19 that met for several years. And we had one young man that came one time, and he kept on coming back month after month, which was great. Didn't say very much. When I went and checked in on him one time, I asked how everything was going. And he said it was fantastic because it was part of his routine. -hmm. And it was something that he liked that social connection, but it was part of his routine. So he kept on coming back and back because that was part of what he did.
0: Yeah, that's actually quite common. That's why it was really so difficult when things had to be shut down and in person gatherings weren't able to happen. Some groups were able to move online, but for People that were on the spectrum that were used to that in-person type of gathering, the online option just really wasn't a good fit. A lot of adults, a lot of kids, a lot of people on the spectrum have really struggled to be able to create a new routine or a new sense of normalcy for them. It's been a real anxiety-laden time.
1: I think with especially the support groups, people sometimes have a, a problem jumping in at a certain time. And I think online that made things even worse. So not knowing when to jump in and that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, you mean like with one of the Zoom calls, that Correct. kind of thing? Now, some people on the spectrum are more social creatures and they're able to adapt to these things better and can handle Zoom calls, Google Meet calls, those types of things. And that's great for those who can, but not everyone can. In terms of that repetitive, ritualistic type of behavior, yes, going to the same groupy month going to the same.
1: the same seat.
0: Sitting in the same. Yes, sitting in the same seat. You ever want to throw people off. You have a group and then you sit in a different chair. And boy, that could really cause a little bit of struggle there.
1: Or maybe even a fight.
0: Yeah. So for coping mechanisms, a lot of times for self-regulation, people on the spectrum, adults on the spectrum, as well as kids will do different types of things to help ground them to make them feel more in control. So they might fidget with their hands. They might fidget with their feet. They might shake their legs up and down. They might chew on ice or gum or a straw or tap their fingers or their toes or other types of repetitive behavior. So these things are all examples of what's called stimming, which is self-stimulatory behavior. It's not as obvious as, say, a child who might Flap Their hands or an adult who might rock their body back and forth. Those things are a little bit more obvious. Many adults on the spectrum may have started out doing some of those things, spinning in circles or walking on their toes or maybe even flapping, but later changed their stimming or their self-regulatory behavior to something that still gave them that sense of comfort or confidence or control, but was more socially accepted. There are other types of behaviors that people might turn to that are ritualistic that may happen when someone's really anxious or really sad or really angry. That might be something like picking at their skin or pulling at their hair or cutting or other types of self-harm. It might later lead to numbing using alcohol or drugs, shopping, hoarding, collecting things to an extreme level. Those are all behaviors that adults may have noticed within themselves at some point in time in their life.
1: So again, those are all very common signs for people to watch out for. What about organization?
0: Well, executive functioning skills and being able to stay organized can be very, very difficult. It would have been for me in school or for other adults, maybe if you're thinking back, having trouble keeping your backpack organized, having trouble keeping your school desk organized, remembering to turn in your assignments, that kind of thing. As an adult, it might look like having your desk organized with everything having a perfect place. But then someone comes in thinking you need help cleaning your desk and then putting everything in a pile and then you going absolutely bonkers because now you can't find anything.
1: Karen, why did you look at me and put help in air quotes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I can't count how many times my well-meaning mom wanted to help me by cleaning my room or how many times my lovely well-meaning husband tried to help me, by cleaning my desk. The thing is that... For you
1: have an organization that you know where everything's at?
0: Yeah, and it may not make any sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to me. Maybe there's other adults out there that can relate to that. I think some of you probably can.
1: What about special interests that people might be passionate about?
0: Special interests in the autism world is code for the types of things we're super, super passionate about to the extreme. So we may have very specific interests, and what would be a hobby to one person to us is a passion. So, for example, if somebody was really into baseball and collected baseball cards when they were a kid, it would be the child that also did all of the research on all of the players, memorized all the statistics, learned the history of all of the teams. They really went into depth on those things They might have been very passionate about animals and everything in their life might have revolved around the background of that particular animal and knowing whatever it was there was to know about it. Whatever those types of interests are, they go very deep and they're very passionate. Generally, if a person's given a choice on something that they would want to talk about, it would be that thing. Now, that thing may change over time, A lot of people hop from interest to interest, but when they're into it, they're into it in great depth. This may have actually served people on the spectrum quite well because it could have led into very strong career paths where they were the best at what they did because they were so passionate about it and they learned it from the inside out.
1: So that also ties back to what you were talking about earlier about when people really want to talk about something but over and over again or for long periods of time that might be about that special interest or that special hobby, correct?
0: Absolutely. And in our show that we did about early signs of autism in children, we talked about them wanting to talk about that special thing that really gets them jazzed over and over again. It can be a real good key to having conversations with other people if you find people who share those interests. That's one great way to be able to make friends is to find people who like what you like. But at the same time, if you're monologuing about that subject and not giving someone else a chance to jump in and share, it can
1: also provide difficulty
0: as well with that social communication piece.
1: Thank you so much. So what about sensory and physical signs?
0: Yes, let's talk about this a bit because sensory signs aren't really part of the diagnostic criteria. And yet every person I have ever met that's on the autism spectrum has had some sort of challenge with processing sensory information. This may be a struggle to process visual or auditory information, talking before like the struggle with the eye contact and it being painful because looking someone in the eye is just too overwhelming. It can be lights, seeing lights and hearing lights and lights flickering and buzzing and making noise. It might be your senses with a radio dial turned up high and being able to smell something from across the room that no one else can. It might look like struggles with noises, smells, touching, and sensory input. As a child and as an adult, it might have looked like being a very picky or selective eater with few preferred foods. So I was a kid who ate my hamburgers plain. What? Yeah. That's strange. Amazing.
1: Just like our youngest.
0: And our oldest. Plain food. In fact, growing up in the school that I went to, the elementary school, they had Tuesdays where they would bring in either hamburgers or hot dogs or tacos. And you could order plain or you could order goopy. And I would order plain. And there would be two other kids that would order plain. But there would probably be a few others that wanted to order plain, but it wasn't socially acceptable. You had to have goopy. You had to have all this stuff on it. So then if you were a plain kid and you did not get in line quickly enough, you might be stuck with a goopy burger. And what's worse?
1: That's horrible. It's
0: horrifying. So for kids that are picky or selective eaters, they might have a tendency to want to eat foods that are very bland. They might want to eat foods that are the same over and over again. I could have the same breakfast of Cocoa Puffs every day for a month. But if they change the recipe or they change the box, that could be a problem.
1: Are there other things to look out for as far as eating?
0: Yeah, so a lot of times it's the smell and the taste and the texture of a food that can really make someone not want to eat it or to avoid it. So unfortunately, a red flag, particularly in girls, although this does happen in boys and adults as well, are eating disorders. That may also be wanting to be able to have control over your situation. You may not feel you have control over anything else. So controlling what you eat and when you eat and how much you eat is something that many children on the spectrum may have tried to do. So anorexia, bulimia, compulsive eating, those are all red flags.
1: What about sensory input?
0: People on the spectrum tend to be sensory seekers or sensory avoiders. You may be craving sensory stimulation or you may be wanting to avoid it, and it can be different at different points in time. You might really want when you're stressed to have a great big hug a squeezed hug, or you might want to wrap yourself in a weighted blanket. A famous example of this was Temple Grandin, who is probably one of the most well-known autistic adults that's alive. In her movie, they showed her creating a squeezing machine while she was still in college. Some people, though, on the spectrum do not like to be touched. They do not like to be hugged. If you even make an attempt to, they will turn away and pull away very quickly. So you never want to for somebody who doesn't want that physical touch to have
1: it. Now with COVID, handshakes are not acceptable anymore. So I'm sure that's good for some people.
0: I was actually one who was pretty good at wanting to shake hands, but I didn't realize until later in life how strong my handshake was.
1: Yes, you have a very strong handshake.
0: (laughs) Other physical challenges might be that you might feel like you're clumsy or have difficulty with coordination, bump into things. It might have also looked like having trouble riding a bike or tying your shoes when you were a child. It could have also looked like having trouble with fine motor skills like handwriting, printing. Back in the day when we had to do cursive, that would have been really difficult. Cutting with scissors, those might have been things that would have been signs that you might have had some problems as well because there's often a fine motor skill, gross motor skill issue. That's not with everybody, and it doesn't mean that someone on the spectrum might not be very athletic, but those are some physical signs for some people. A lot of people on the spectrum struggle with sleep, trying to get your body to settle enough to be able to fall asleep, and then also to be able to stay asleep. Sometimes in our family, we need to have things to think about before we can fall asleep.
1: I know you make lists of things in your head when you're trying to fall asleep.
0: I have so many thoughts that are going on in my head and so many boxes that are open that I have to hyper-focus on a list in order to fall asleep. So I might use all of the winners of the Survivor reality show in order or all the people who were contestants in Season 20 or something like that.
1: So now that we've covered some of the signs of autism in adults, what are some of the next steps? For example, where can you find a diagnosis?
0: Receiving an autism diagnosis as an adult can be kind of difficult. It's a personal decision that each adult needs to make. But having one was important to me, and it might be important to you too. It could mean a greater understanding of yourself and how you relate to the world. It can help you learn how to better work with your strengths and strengthen areas of your life that are challenging. Getting diagnosed can help you gain a different perspective on your childhood. It puts things into place. Things start to make sense that may not have made sense before. It can also help those around you to understand and empathize more with your unique characteristics. Better understanding the set of challenges you face can help you find new and inventive ways to work with or around these challenges. So if you're looking to get a diagnosis, you could start with your general practitioner and try to get a referral from him or her because they're likely not going to be qualified to be able to give you a diagnosis. What many people do, and sometimes this is an insurance thing, it depends on the type of insurance you have and where you live, you want to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist that's experienced in diagnosing autism in adults. When you go there, the clinician is going to want to talk to you about any issues you have regarding communication, emotions, behavioral patterns, your range of interests, and other things too. Because the diagnostic criteria that are used are also used for children, You're going to be answering questions about your own childhood. Your clinician might request, depending upon your age, to speak with your parents or other older family members to potentially gain their perspectives of what your lifelong behavior patterns are like. There are autism tests online. They're not used for diagnosis. Some women might find the questions a little bit more biased toward the male gender But we can put that in our show notes to give you an idea of some of the types of questions that might be asked on your evaluation and to be thinking about that.
1: Well, that was very helpful. So I have one more question for you. What kinds of therapy and supports are available?
0: Autistic adults are generally not given the same types of treatments as children. And that can seem obvious because they're not children. They're no longer in elementary school or grade school when a lot of the supports come into place. But that doesn't mean that you can't get support. Sometimes autistic adults may be treated with speech communication or social communication support. They could get occupational therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Most often, you need to seek out specific types of treatments based on the challenges that you're experiencing, like anxiety or social isolation, depression, relationship problems or job difficulties, Some possibilities for support would include seeing a psychiatrist that's experienced in autism treatment for medical evaluation, just to make sure there are not other medical comorbidities or diagnoses that you might have. A psychiatrist and certain doctors can prescribe medication for certain symptoms, like anxiety or depression, or potential behavioral issues that may occur alongside autism. You might want to consult a psychologist or counselor or social worker for group and individual therapy. Not everybody likes therapy in groups, but it works for some people. Now with COVID-19, there's a lot of telehealth, telemedicine types of appointments available. One accommodation and one reason that many people do end up trying to get diagnosed is so that they can get vocational rehabilitation or job coaching. They need help with employment and career-related difficulties. A lot of adults on the autism spectrum find themselves either unemployed or underemployed or not in their field of interest. As I say all these things, I want to point out that we're not medical providers. We are providing this to you as educational content. You're going to want to speak with a medical professional for medically related support. Connecting with other autistic adults for advocacy and understanding can be very powerful. Now, you may not want to socialize with them, but that doesn't mean you can't learn from them. There is a lot of literature out there, a lot of books written by people on the spectrum. There are a lot of forums. Wrongplanet.net is a forum that has thousands of different topics that you can read through to learn more about yourself. We just did a two-part series on online and in-person support groups and forums. So go back and check out our Autism Empowerment Podcast episodes number four and five. Finally, plugging into educational resources – Things that Autism Empowerment provide include Spectrum Life magazine. You can learn more about that at www.spectrumlife.org. We put out a quarterly magazine where all of the current and past issues are free for you to be able to look at. We often have autistic adults that are writing in that publication that can help you better understand yourself as well, potentially. And finally, subscribe to the Autism Empowerment Podcast because we are going to be continuing to serve you with content for the long haul. At Autism Empowerment, we say that autism is a journey. It is. Autism is a lifelong journey, and we're here to meet you along the way.
1: Wow, that was a lot of information yet again. Thank you again so much to you, Karen, for going over all of that for us. I'm going to hand it back to Karen to close us out.
0: John, thank you so much. I always enjoy doing these conversations with you. I hope that our listeners out there were able to gain some value today, perhaps learn something about themselves or a loved one. We have these conversations because we do care very deeply about promoting a culture of autism acceptance. The autism community is a pretty wonderful community. There may be challenges, but there are also a lot of blessings. We will put the signs and symptoms and different details about the conversation in our show notes at our website. We really do look forward to having you come back and join us again. We appreciate you hanging out with us and thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Autism Empowerment Podcast. If you'd like to get connected with our community as well as all the great support and content we have planned for the future, please hit the subscribe button and visit www.autismempowermentpodcast.org for show notes, transcripts, social media details, Spectrum Life magazine, and more. As a 501c3 nonprofit charity, we rely upon support from listeners like you to produce our podcast and other programs. We appreciate you leaving a positive review, sharing our show, and considering a tax-deductible donation today. Thank you again.